but we get to continue in um, our sermon series of Heaven in the Ordinary, where we are looking at the songs. And what a fitting book to find ourselves in. What a fitting book to settle in, in the midst of quarantine. As it's been said just about every week, the Psalms, these 150 songs and poems, um, cover the entire width and depth and breadth of our emotion. And, uh, and, and so parking ourselves in the songs in our Sunday habit and rooting ourselves in these songs, these songs, these poems, um, naming um, part of our emotion, uh, naming the struggle of our emotion uh, in this season is just such a, a, it's just, it's the right place for us to be as a community. And I'm grateful for that. And this week we get to dive into one of my favorite songs. It's Psalm 40. And the reason it's one of my favorite psalms is it's because it's, it's really one of the first psalms that I heard. And when I was in middle school, uh, which was in uh, around 1983, 84, uh, and then 85, started going into high school, um, I became uh, aware of this new budding four-person rock band from Dublin, Ireland called U2, and they were putting out these uh, crazy challenging records and, and we were if if you're old enough to remember uh, so much of the music in in the mid 80s was so pop central and so thin uh but then all of a sudden this band shows up and they're singing about justice and injustice and war and um poverty and power and 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 so there was a, a richness and a depth to them and in 1983 they came out with a record uh called war and it just happens that I have it on vinyl. Look at Russ Keeney agreeing with me. I have a 1983 original U2 war record. And you can, I don't know if you can see it, but I'll put it up right there. There's some chew marks. Some animal got into it. But anyway, I still have this record. And if you see the record, I mean, look at just the, the menacing picture of this a black and white photo of a, ch of a child, and it's called War. And it is a complicated record with, with songs like Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day and The Refugee. And, and it's just this incredibly powerful justice record. But the last song is this song called 40. And I was too dumb and naive in 1983 to understand that Bono is not the genius poet of the song 40. I thought he was onto something. I thought he was like, reshaping what poetry looked like in the world, only to come find out many, many years later that Bono didn't write 40, David did, like a thousand, you know, 2,000 years ago or so, 3,000 years ago. And, uh, and I was like, I, I didn't know that. But then, then all of a sudden, my relationship to YouTube took off, recognizing their relationship to the scriptures as well. And so it's one of my favorite psalms. It's, some, it's a psalm that I've been singing for years and years and years. And I've had the privilege of seeing you two live probably a half a dozen times. And in a few of those shows, they conclude with this song. Uh, and uh, as the, after two and a half hours of just like incredible hands in the air, almost a for, like literally like a form of worship, they conclude with this song 40. And there's that refrain. And you know it if you know this you two song. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song over and over? And the crowd will sing it long after the band leaves the stage. And there's this refrain. There's this refrain. How long, Lord, do we sing this song? But the flip side of this is a positive psalm for me is that it's a challenging psalm for me. Because the first line of this psalm says something, it names something uh, that I am just not very good at. And that's the subject of patience. 
And the confession that I have is that I am not a terribly patient person. And so to read that first line, even though I want to celebrate it, it really, really does challenge me. And it really says something to me. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to read through this psalm. I want to pause for a while in verses 1, 2, and 3, really specifically verse 1. Then I kind of want to reflect on it a little bit. And then we'll go back and we'll read the rest of the psalm to see how David kind of the movement of this song, this poem, and to see where he, conclu- where he concludes. So let's just begin uh, by reading Psalm 40. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. And so right when we begin this psalm, that first line says, I waited patiently. I waited patiently. And when I, even when I sing the song, I want to get past that first line to get into the the redemption and restoration and the hope of the song. But if I stop and reflect on the psalm, I, I, I stop right there in the word patient. And I realize that I am not a very patient person. Now, there are spaces in my life that that I do okay. I've learned after 47 years how to uh, often in in very public state uh, uh, settings and spaces kind of control my impatience. I can put a a good face on it. I can put a good front on it. I I um, I can project calm and patience, even though inside I'm a wreck. But there are far more spaces where my impatience just rears its ugly head. And often, most often, my impatience is, um, go- goes after those that are very close to me, those that are closest to me, my wife Anne, my kids, my family. My impatience comes out a lot with my family. And when it does, it hurts. It, it hurts others. Uh, the words that follow my impatience hurt. They, um, they, go- they go after people. Uh, it is identifying others' weaknesses and others' mistakes uh, and uh, it creates um, all, all kinds of um, uh, statements that will flow out of me that really will go after, um, if I'm honest with myself, their dignity and their value. I don't see them. I don't think of them in high regard. I, I see them in their weaknesses. And inevitably, I'll get away from that space, and I'll get some time, and I'll come to my senses that what I did was wrong. Usually, it's St. Anne coming to see me, and saying something in that very sweet Mother Teresa thing that she has about her. And she'll say calmly as she puts her hand on my shoulder, you're an idiot. You are an absolute idiot. And the words that come out of your mouth are so hurtful. And it's so not fair. And that's when I begin to realize, like, I, this just isn't my jam. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at being patient. It's not my first response. Here's the thing. I hate that about me. I don't like that about me. Um, Because I recognize that patience isn't something that some people have and others don't. Patience as a virtue, as as a fruit of the spirit, is something that we ought to long for, that we ought to pursue, that we ought to become disciples of that ethic. And that's because it is divine and holy and Jesus like. And Jesus was patient and God is patient. And we ought to pursue this. 
Now, it's interesting, um, going back to the, the, the text in the beginning, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Um, when I first began to um, really kind of like get into the, the study of this passage, it became clear to me that the word patient doesn't actually exist in the Hebrew language of Psalm 40. Uh, and so just a quick kind of like um, uh, language piece in this is that um, uh, the, the passage begins with two words back to back. It's the word kava, kava. And kava is the, is the verb to wait. Now the first, and so in, in Hebrew, you can add prefixes and suffixes, and it'll change the person, the tone, and the mood, and even the type of verb that it is. But the root word is there. It's kava, kava. And the first time it's used, it's used in just a classic, like past tense, first person. So it's I waited. But the next kava is in the infinitive, and you would write uh, how you would define that is you would work, put the word to in front of it. So if you were looking up a verb in the dictionary, like the verb to walk, if you looked up walk, as you got down to the verb, it would say to walk. And that's the, that's the infinitive. But so this literally translates, I waited to wait. The word patience actually isn't in the Hebrew. I waited to wait, or some translators say, as I was waiting in the waiting, as I was waiting in the waiting. But anytime you take two words in this language and put them back together, it's an intensifier. It's an opportunity to to take that idea to its fullest, to its most complete. It is, you're trying to draw out its highest value. You're trying to draw out its most profound sense its purest sense. And the Israelites, with their Hebrew language, believed that the proper translation for waiting in the waiting, I waited to wait, the highest value of waiting, the most pure and holy form of waiting, was to do so patiently. And when I read that and began to study that, I was just really, really, really overwhelmed with that that the value, that what David is trying to say is this, is that patience is the goal, but you can't get to patience unless you deal with the waiting. Patience is the the result at the end of that long journey. It's It's the prize at the end of the journey, but patience is the, or waiting is the journey. And so if we wanna say, I wanna be a patient person, I wanna, I wanna work on my patience. What David is saying is, you got to sit in the waiting. You got to journey through the waiting to get to patience. And so as I study this and reflect on this over the last couple of weeks and my pause and my reflection, I say things like, well, what does it look like for me to wait? What does it look like for me to wait in the waiting? How does patience then manifest from that season of waiting? And then what am I supposed to do in the waiting? Is it passive or is it active? And so I'll just ask you the same question. I I don't think I'm alone in being a patient or impatient person. And so just by a show of hands to those on the screen, if patience is not your jam, would you just show me that I'm not alone? And And if you have to raise your spouse's hand for you, feel the liberty to do that because they're unaware, please do that as well. Uh, but look at, there are a lot of hands up. There are a lot of hands up. And some of us are really, really good at patience. And that is, there is, there is great depth and wisdom to that. But for a lot of us, we're just failing in that. Sometimes we fail because it's our hardwiring. I mean, I want to say all the time to Ann, don't blame me. It's the way God wired me. 
And Anne will look at me in that sweet Mother Teresa voice and say, you're an idiot. It's just not true. Some of us, though, patience is just because we haven't matured enough. And it'll come with maturity. It'll come with time and growth and experience and wisdom. But some of it, let's just name it, our impatience is because of the season that we're in. Quarantine is challenging our patience. I mean, how many more scenarios of this can you have? You know, like while at work, while you're in your makeshift office in your bedroom, just getting off a call to your boss, you hear your kids screaming on the other side of the house like bloody murder, and you go running towards there to see what's happening. And what you realize is that you have these two little savages beating each other, screaming at each other because someone left the back door open. Now the dog's out terrorizing the neighborhood. Meanwhile, your spouse is in the other makeshift office, like in, in, in the dining room, screaming, will everybody just shut up? I'm on my 14th Zoom call. It's not even 1130 in the morning. And you realize why the kids were in the kitchen and in the back room is because they decided to make lunch. And you look up at the ceiling and you realize, really, is it possible to get egg yolk and chocolate chips on the ceiling? I didn't know that was humanly possible. I didn't know food bomb went off in the kitchen. And your kids are beating on each other and everybody's screaming and then you just lose it. You can't take it anymore. Quarantine is challenging our patients on a daily basis, for some of us an hourly basis, for some of us a, a, a minute by minute. And you find yourself in this space where you're just kind of at the end of your rope, your patients. And so what do you do in those situations? Well, you just fake your GI issue and you lock yourself in your bathroom with a glass of wine. You don't care that it's 1130 on a Wednesday. And while you're in there, you're contemplating the tragedies of life and how you overreact to them. And this is kind of like our, our relationship right now in time and space is that our patience is being tested. But yet David found it so critically important to tell us to become patient. We got to wait in the waiting. We have to journey that walk, that movement in the waiting. Waiting is not a passive action. It is, it is an active movement. It's an active movement. Another question that arises for me when I read this was, how long was David's waiting? I mean, it could be that we could read, I waited patiently for the Lord, and then he turned and heard my cry. If we read it too fast, we can believe that maybe David's waiting was uh, quick. We don't know the context of why he wrote this psalm. There's no, we don't have a historical context for it. But if it was brief, then that's not waiting. A brief waiting is a timeout. But waiting is a long season on hold. And David is talking about that season on hold. But when he understood the crisis that was compounding his life, his movement was to go wait on the Lord for the Lord. He went and waited patiently. He waited in the waiting for God's response. And he was willing to sit there until the God of the universe responded to him. True waiting is a time issue. It's the season on hold. And all of us enter this season of waiting for different reasons. But all of us enter that space because we're totally desperate. We're totally desperate. And we have big needs that need to be filled. David seems to believe that the way that we get to patients is through the waiting. And I, I think that's really, really important. And so perhaps some of the questions we have to ask then is, if we're willing to enter into the space of waiting, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to pursue? What are we supposed to glean? What are we supposed to gain? What do, what do we do in the waiting? Because it sounds passive, but it can't be. What do we do? 
And so as I read and studied this psalm, and, and, and we'll read it in a minute, like two big themes popped out. One was this posture of humility, and one was this clinging to hope. And I started to understand that what David was saying, after he writes, I waited patiently and God heard me. When you begin to read the next 16 verses, you see humility and hope. Humility is that place uh, in that space of waiting is when we declare, I am in desperate need of help. I need intervention. I am at the end of my space, end of my rope, end of my strength, end of my knowledge, end, I'm, end of my wallet. I'm at the end of what I can do, and I am desperate. And in that humility, I began to realize that you, God, are God, and I'm not. Humility, I think, is what David is saying, is this first posture, this first pursuit in our waiting. Humility declares there is no place else to go. And there's nobody else that I can seek. There's that famous quote that Abraham Lincoln is uh, attributed to where he says, I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all of those about me seemed insufficient for that day. That's humility. Humility recognizes our smallness and our desperation for God. Louis Giglio, one of the great teachers in this country, has this famous quote where he says, God is the great I am and I am the great I am not. I am the great I am not. Humility puts us in our place. It makes us, it makes us understand the reality of who we are, small, weak, frail, in desperate need. James 4.10 in the New Testament, the brother of Jesus writes, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Lift you up where? Out of the miry clay. And if he lifts you out of the miry clay, he will set your feet upon a rock and he will put a new song in your mouth. Humility, divine humility, set apart holy Jesus humility is part of our discipleship. And discipleship is a journey and it takes time, it takes time, it takes time. Humility reminds us that there is a God and it's not us. Humility reminds us of our desperate need for that God. And the second thing that I find when I read this is this, subject, is this concept of hope. In Psalm 39, the Psalm right before this, David writes this, but now Lord, what do I look for? And he's talking about how the world is crushing in on him and his need for God. He says, okay, God, what, it, what is it that I'm supposed to look for? And his answer, my hope is in you. And this is a constant theme of David as he's pursuing God. Even though the world, his sin and external forces are crushing him, when he says, what am I supposed to do? His answer is, well, my hope is in you. So what I'm supposed to look for is the God of hope. And if you're pursuing God in the waiting and you're clinging to hope, you begin to, put your, you begin to ask these questions. You begin to ponder these ideas. See, to have hope in the Lord in all things is to say, I trust you, God, that you are who you say you are. I trust you where you're leading this. God, I trust you that you have a plan. I trust you that my tomorrow can be better than my yesterday. I trust that you are with me and for me and in me and around me, that, that you are about redemption and restoration and renewal, that you are leading me to places where your kingdom is gonna thrive, that you're guiding me to places of abundance because hope leads to satisfaction. And in the waiting, in the pursuit of God, in the pursuit of a posture of humility, in the pursuit of clinging to hope, David is saying, there is satisfaction. There is victory in this life. And there is an end result of our waiting, and that's patience. 
And that's understanding the divine nature of God's patience for us. It's understanding Jesus's patience for us. We don't just jump to patience. We have to journey the waiting. We don't just say, I'm good. If we say, I want to become a more patient person, David's saying, well, maybe you ought to consider the waiting. Because in the waiting, God is in the waiting with you. You are not apart from God in the waiting. David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He didn't say, I waited alone for God to come back into my space. No, he just said, I waited patiently, knowing that the presence of God was there, but I waited for his response. And the outcome for David was really, really good. So let's just take a few seconds or a few minutes and let's just read. I want to read through this psalm again. And I want you to see the spaces of humility and hope in this book. So I'm going to read this. Uh, It says this. Um, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. That is about humility and hope. Then he goes on to say, I need to move this here. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things that you plan for us. No one can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Verse 6, sacrifice and offering you don't desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, God, not mine, for your law is always within my heart. This is all about humility and hope. Verse 9, I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. And so David is acknowledging his sin. Sin. He's acknowledging the brokenness of, his, of, his, of, of himself and his desperate need for God to intervene to save him and to rescue him. And then he goes on to talk about external forces that are attacking him. So be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. Help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. This is humility and hope. And then it finishes with this great conclusion. After all the humility and hope, look where he roots this in humility and hope. But as for me, takes it back to his own understanding of self. I am poor and needy. And so may the Lord think of me. That verb to think is also the verb to value and esteem. And if I'm impatient and I don't think about my family, I don't think about the person in front of me that I'm destroying with my impatience, that means I am not thinking about them, valuing them, or esteeming them. I am not honoring their dignity. David's statement is, may the Lord value me. And all of my weakness and my fragility and all my brokenness and my sin, as I reach out to you and I'm restored, may you reset me, renew me, make me whole again, make me more like your son, and think of me with that great value. 
He says, why would you do this? Because you are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. And I'm telling you what, when you read that, uh, it's all about hope and humility. I see David honoring those two pursuits, the pursuit of becoming more humble and clinging to hope. David was onto something here on the subject of patience, but really is far more about waiting, I think. Patience comes at the end result of the waiting, but the waiting we can't dismiss. We can't pass. We can't get to past it. We have to sit in it. We have to sit in the discipline of the waiting. And I also want to say this, as I read Psalm 40, it is crystal clear that I see Jesus in this passage. I see Jesus personified in this passage. Not only is he the purest example of humility, he is the greatest hope in the universe. When I say I am poor, needy, and desperate for you, Jesus, in all of his humility, took on our poverty to become our need. Man, when I see this, I see Jesus in this. And when I cry out, I am desperate for help and deliverance, Jesus is my help, and he is the deliverance. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, I am delivered from the trappings of my sin. My relationship with God is reconnected and rebuilt and made whole again. Jesus is the humble servant, and he is the hope. And so even as we wrap this up, I, you know, I can't get this out of my head too this week as I've been preparing for this, but um, the great prophet, uh, I think his name was St. Tom of Petty, once noted that waiting is the hardest part. And I think that that's a lot of truth in that. Or as my kids would say, that's facts. Waiting is hard. It's tough. Waiting can be discouraging, can be lonely, can be frustrating. But David says it's necessary. It's necessary for our discipleship. And the end result of that is a patience that sees people with their, in their value because that's the way that God sees us. And it's just this beautiful cycle. It's very, very Jesus-like. And so as we enter into this desire for becoming more patient, may we as a community be willing to walk in the waiting, to rest in the waiting, to seek and pursue God in the waiting. May we do that with a great sense of humility. May we humble ourselves. May we recognize our smallness. May we say, God, you are the great I am, and I am the great I am not. And in that humility, may we cry out to him for our desperate need. And in that, may we hear and see God reveal to us himself, his nature, his goodness, his plan. And may we discover the truth and beauty of who God is as Father and Son and Spirit. And may we find hope and courage in the waiting. May our waiting be good and may patience overflow that journey. So all of you who are struggling with patience, let's enter into this space together and let's see what God does with us as he continually transforms us into the image of the Son. And for that, the church says, amen. Amen and amen.